seeing the lack of opportunity for First Nations people across the world to participate in the design of critical technologies. Welcome to Let's Fix It, the podcast from the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship and the World Economic Forum that speaks to leading social innovators and finds out how they're fixing some of the world's biggest problems. On this episode, we travel south of the equator to South Africa and Australia to dive deep into the minds of two people who are tearing down digital divides and bringing the power of emerging technologies to their communities. I took a risk and I resigned and I started selling the refurbished computers because I see the need of people having computers, using computers. Subscribe to Let's Fix It on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to like, write and review us. I'm Pavitra Raja at the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. Join me and learn how some of the world's brightest minds are quite literally fixing it. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're using some kind of a connected device, perhaps a smartphone, a tablet, or a computer of some kind. Well, can you imagine what your life would be like without a smart device? How would you get around? How would you keep in touch with your friends? What about the latest TikTok trends? Unimaginable, right? Well, get this. 37% of the world's population have never used the internet. That's nearly 3 billion people. In this episode of Let's Fix It, we're here from two social innovators who have made it their mission to serve their communities by tailoring technological solutions to bridge the digital divide. These initiatives are for the community, by the community. When I say artificial intelligence, machine learning, the metaverse, what comes to your mind? You see the future, right? But what if I told you that these technologies are key to understanding our past better? My guest, Michaela Jade, used to be a park ranger at the Kakadu National Park in Australia. The park is home to ancient cultural landmarks. Some rock paintings are over 20,000 years old. Michaela wanted to find a way to honor her culture and became obsessed with an idea to bring the stories of her ancestors back to life. And she also gave me some excellent advice on staying resilient in the face of discrimination and disbelief. Let's jump right into our conversation. I'm fixing the lack of opportunity for First Nations people across the world to participate in the design of critical technologies. And when I say critical technologies, I mean augmented, mixed and virtual reality, bridging technologies which will lead us to the metaverse. I'm talking about machine learning and other types of artificial intelligence um, that will underpin how we understand data as we move forward. And I'm also thinking about blockchain and the opportunities for authenticity and provenance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and First Nations knowledge, language and law. So the big problem that we have at the moment is our underrepresentation in critical technology development. And we're trying to fix that at Indigital by introducing these critical technologies to First Nations communities and working with decision makers in the communities around cultural protocols and what licensing might look like when we introduce our knowledge, language and law into these critical technologies. It was only in 2007 that the Australian Prime Minister at that time, Kevin Rudd, apologised for the atrocities that Indigenous 
people went through. What was that moment like for someone who is Indigenous and Aboriginal like like you? In 2007, leading up to 2008, I actually wasn't very heavily connected to my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. I grew up as a result of the policies that you're talking about where the government forcibly removed children from their families, particularly children that were of mixed race heritage. So I didn't grow up grounded in my culture and in the ways that I should have been because of those government policies. So obviously it was very emotional. I worked on country as a park ranger with lots of community and I was very emotional when the apology happened and it wasn't until 2012 where the gravity of that apology really hit me when I understood where I came from and who my people were and when I connected up with my own community. You went from not knowing where you come from to being a park ranger and then, you know, leading this company that not only caters to the first peoples as a, as clientele, but also to their rights. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you go from park ranger to tech pioneer? I was working in national parks in remote communities across Australia. And as part of my role in national parks, I managed visitors. So a lot of park interpretation and education, creating science, creating opportunities for people to connect with both the landscape and the cultures on whose country those experiences are. And there were a few kind of inflection points in my career where I thought, hmm, we need to do this a bit better. The first was seeing metal signs on cultural places. So putting a metal sign to talk about an Aboriginal perspective of like a rock art site, for example, the process in national parks involved in doing that work at the time was completely devoid of First Nations voices. It was the park rangers, the archaeologists putting their perspectives forward on what happened in that place and then it would be condensed down into a digestible chunk for visitors to come and look at the sign and go, hmm, that's a very old place. I kind of got sick of seeing people coming to these special places and walking away with the perspective that those people are no longer there or connected to their country. Imagine we could put our phones up to this cultural place and our elders could appear in holographic format and share the right story at the right time in the right place in the right language for the right reasons and then we could build a business model around that. So I set about doing that with no money and no support which was incredibly difficult. So I was told I was crazy the whole time. (laughs) I experienced a lot of racism too. Like there were a lot of people that said to me Aboriginal people don't use technology how are you making money out of this? And there was a lot of focus on what the business model would be rather than actually building this technology and having it be of incredible use to both the visitors that came to the places and the community um, who owned the story of those places. I was able to connect with an incredible man, Jason Higgins, who lived in the UK, who said, yes, I'll help you. And He taught me over Skype over a two-year period how to do image recognition, how to develop the app, how to create the content, what the user experience should be like. And, yeah, eventually we made a minimum viable product. I was invited to the United Nations in New York. We were able to showcase the technology at the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. And then loads of First Nations people said, we want you to do this for our community. It was a very expensive way to produce stories. So even after we spent $200,000 building the minimum viable product, 
it was costing $10,000 for 90 seconds of content because we needed teams of engineers and animators and riggers and people who were graphic designers. So I had to go back to the drawing board and I was about to quit my company and I ended up meeting the most phenomenal person in Microsoft, Tianji Dickens, um, who saw the value in what I was trying to do. And then Microsoft were able to spend some time with me and really understand what I wanted to achieve and then marry that up with the technology that was available. And that's the point where I got introduced to artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we were able to create a platform where First Nations or anyone really can create 3D holographic content, can create audio stories. And then through our platform, instantaneously generate augmented reality storytelling. We've been teaching kids across Australia and New Zealand about how to create this content really well, as well as the elders. And we've formulated a process, I guess, that respects Indigenous cultural, intellectual property and moral rights, cultural protocols, which are designed by the community. And then we take those cultural protocols and work with the community to shape educational curriculum that gets sold into schools so the kids can learn how to do this too. Incredible, Michaela. Wow. There's this woman is resilient and tenacious and broke down so many barriers, not just for yourself and then for the next generation of women, especially First Nations women. Tell me the exact moment that you realized that I can do this and I really want to do this because that's like the triggering point for most social entrepreneurs. They go from you have this idea to, I'm going to do this. What made you make that decision? I think it was a number of moments along the journey, but the first time was when the idea nearly ate me alive and I couldn't sleep. The idea came to me in the shower and it just wouldn't leave my head. And then I got more and more excited about it throughout the following weeks. And I just, I just couldn't put it to bed and I couldn't switch my head off. So I knew Something else was driving me to do this other than my own free will. The second time was when I had my breakdown after realising the way that I'd put the technology together and the way that I was working with communities needed a reframe. It was when I was driving to what I said was going to be my last speaking engagement and my daughter, who was 14 at the time, turned around while I was bawling my eyes out saying, I can't do this anymore. She sort of grabbed me and she's like, Mum, you have to keep doing this because I want to take over your company when I finish school. I realized I had the buy-in of my kids and the next generation into what I was trying to achieve and that that was important to them. So they're probably the two moments that really compelled me to keep going, even though the odds were stacked against us. At the Schwab Foundation, you are the first First Nations woman that we've awarded. How do we create more spaces for more Indigenous women coming into global arenas it's really about connections. It's been really hard for our people to make connections into the business community or into the technology sector um, or into banking, trade and finance and investment because there are so many cultural biases about our capabilities in these areas. I think that's so important to have representation. It's powerful to see someone who looks like you up there. So I, I can only imagine your daughter would feel so much pride to see her to see her mom up there on stage, as would other young First Nations women and, and young girls. Tell me a little bit about your education um, as well. So you also educate young people with this technology. Why is that so important, especially in Australia? 
I failed school actually. So I didn't pass my end of year examinations. I got 36 out of 100. My mum told me she's going to sign me up to secretary school. <laughs> so I decided I didn't want to be someone's secretary. And I walked up to the local TAFE, which is our um, vocational education system in New South Wales. And I signed myself up to repeat year 12 at TAFE. So I did that. And I met a phenomenal woman called Judy Parker, who just became this incredible mentor to me around what my possibilities would be and where I wanted to direct this passion that I had for country and connecting with our natural environments. And it was through her that I really discovered that I actually could be a park ranger and that I should pursue further studies and ended up getting 89 or something like that in my high school certificate, again, doing it again. So that was a bit of a confidence booster, so going from 36 to 89 and then being accepted into university to start my studies in environmental biology. I still get so frustrated in some of the things that happened at school. I always got asked about where my heritage was from and I could never answer that. I kept saying Australia because I didn't know anything else. And people had real biases about women's ability in computing, in mathematics, in engineering, and in science. And I really loved computers. I loved doing computing studies. Like I had the textbook, Pavitra, and I was reading the textbook front page to back page about computing and about coding and about this new world of HTML. And I just really loved it. But I dropped out of computing in year nine because I was the only girl in the class. And I just felt really unwelcome in that environment. So reflecting on that, I thought, wow, I could change that. But I got crushed two years ago when my daughter Amy was in year nine and she said, mom, I'm going to drop out of computing because I'm the only girl in the class. And that moment hit me where I was like, oh my gosh, nothing has changed in the way that we educate girls and women about their ability in any of the STEM subjects. So that kind of lit a fire in my belly once I picked myself up from being so thoroughly crushed about that. Um, and trying to convince her to stay because it's one of my regrets. I wish I'd stayed in computing. We really need more women and more First Nations women to talk about our abilities in this area. We're really great at pattern recognition and machine learning is all about pattern recognition in, in data. And um, we're really, really great at that. I'd I've spoken to First Nations people across Australia about this and a lot of people say, yeah, I'm really good at that too. So is that an innate ability? Maybe we can help foster that. We want to be 21st century Aboriginal people. So often we're typecast into the pre-contact way of knowing, being and doing. And our people always innovated. We always did engineering. We always evolved our culture as to what was available to us or the bright sparks of imagination that we developed. Like, look at all the stuff that we've invented, boomerangs, fish traps, engineering structures that are the oldest known engineering structures on the planet still operational today. There's a lot of things that we have in our cultures that where we have expressed this amazing ability in science, technology, engineering and maths, and it's just not recognised. Our elders are scientists. Our elders are lawmakers. Our elders are educators. We don't need a Western institution label on us to validate that kind of knowledge system. We are empowered people. We are very intelligent people. We're very capable people. What we're lacking is the systemic 
opportunities for us to get involved and start influencing the system. And I always think if we can get it right for our people, it's going to work for everyone. It doesn't matter who the person is, you're incredibly kind to them. Everybody deserves to be treated with kindness and respect and courtesy. And I don't know where this idea of dominant leadership generated from, but it's dead. (laughs) Every time people see that behaviour played out in a boardroom or in an office or in the media, the majority of the population are turning their backs on that kind of behaviour. It makes me feel happier to know that the people I interact with leave that interaction feeling positive about themselves and their opportunity and their potential. I'm sure there's there's plenty because you talk very openly about your failures, but maybe one example of how you may have failed well. I've taken on projects in the past where the value sets of the two organisations weren't aligned. And as a hungry startup founder, um, you need resources to keep your company going. And in the early days, people presented opportunities to in digital that probably weren't values aligned. And I took the projects on because we needed the cash flow and we just needed to start demonstrating what our capability was. And in the early days, I wasn't paying enough attention to the importance of alignment of values between organisations. And I think something that I did the last time that that happened was I fired a client. (laughs) I stood up for myself and for the company in that moment for the first time. And when you just start a company and you're trying to establish yourself in the marketplace, it's a really brave thing to do to fire a client. I agonised over it for so long before I did it. But in the end, both parties were like, ah, finally, we've, we've agreed that this isn't working and we've agreed on a way to go our different paths and that was okay. Are we values aligned? That's the most primary question and if we can't answer that with a hell yes, then it's a hell no. What is one piece of advice that you'd share with someone who wants to be a social entrepreneur or even with yourself, your younger self? I would probably say to my younger self, trust your gut. Every time I haven't trusted my gut, something's gone wrong. (laughs) So it's those moments when no one else believes in you that you really need to support yourself and believe in your vision and go and knock on those doors until your knuckles bleed, (laughs) until someone finally opens it and then you need to stand in front of that person and say, I'm worth it. Developing that sense of self and developing the sense of confidence, even if you don't believe yourself at times, is very important on the social entrepreneur's journey because if you don't back yourself, then you can't expect your community or partners to back you either. That was the wonderful Michaela Jane, founder of InDigital. Now don't go anywhere because after the break, we're going to hear from Lavoya Rani, a social entrepreneur who's transforming the lives of township dwellers in South Africa. How? Stay tuned, we'll be right back. I'm Linda Lucina, host of Meet the Leader, the flagship leadership podcast from the World Economic Forum, where top leaders from business, government, and more share how they're tackling the world's biggest challenges. Leaders like activist Jane Goodall. You've got to reach the heart. It's no good arguing with the head. 
or leadership expert John Amici. You can find your inner giant no matter what. Or leaders like former Vice President Al Gore. We have to be willing to make bold moves. Or even CEOs like Verizon's Hans Vestberg. If you're going to lead other people, you need to start with yourself. Only from the World Economic Forum. This is Meet the Leader. Welcome back to Let's Fix It, the podcast from the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship at the World Economic Forum. In this episode of Let's Fix It, we're hearing from people who are changing the way their communities benefit from the power of the web. I first met Luvoya Rani in Cape Town in 2019 and was blown away by his compassion. This is a man who has lived through brutal oppression under the apartheid. He also knows what it feels like to be cut off and disconnected. And he knows how important digital skills are. Lavoyo started by selling old computers from the back of his car. And today he runs Silula Ulutha Technologies, an organization that provides digital skills to thousands of people every year. I shouted to Lavoyo to learn more about his inspiring journey. I mean, South Africa, it's the country where it was probably 28 years now for democracy. So it was a country of segregation and the apartheid where the black people could not be able to run businesses. We have to work for the master. So what I'm fixing, it's a fixing the problem of digital exclusion, a digital gap, digital divide, where the masses of the people in the township, they can't access technology or internet. Even now with the COVID, we have shown us how important digital transformation for everyone that we still, where people have been left out, not been by their choice or their design, it's just a system now. So, and, and no one cares. No one, like, everyone just thinks that people are just like able to connect and able to access it. And it's something that I'm fixing to make sure that everyone's not been left behind. So Lavoya, why do you do what you do? It's so important, so fundamental, because when I started my first day at university, it was the first time that I touched computer. Even today, there still so many young people that they can't touch computers when they go to universities. They've got access to the phone and then they could use it. So that's kind of like that part of unfairness because for me, when I was doing accounting and, 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 and teaching, instead of like learning about analytics, I was strapping to computers. That was a thing that I saw when I started becoming a teacher that my former teachers, they were struggling to use computers. And I took a risk and I resigned and I started selling refurbished computers because I see the need of people having computers, using computers to enable them their, their life. But I never realized that the gap is so huge. That time it was just focusing on the teachers, but the gap was like the community at large, they cannot access technology. They struggling to find employment. They're struggling to grow their businesses. They're struggling to study further because of digital divide. They never touched a computer ever until they joined university. Even today, some schools in South Africa, they do have computers. But those computers are getting dust because there's no teacher who's able to teach the kids on computers. Some schools don't have any infrastructure, any computers. Some school they do, they're sitting at 1,500 in the school. So in one computer, three learners do compute. 
So you can't learn in that environment. It contributes to the unemployment, to the poverty, because you have been excluded to find work because you do not have a skill to do the work. The forum launched a report where they said that the, in the next five years, the most important skills will be digital skills. So if there are folks, especially in the global south, who don't have access to the digital skills and the teachers don't have the infrastructure nor the understanding to teach, this is going to create more of that divide, which already exists. The biggest problem is three ways. It's a problem of skills. The digital skills are not there. So that contributes to the unemployment that we see with the young Africa, South African, I mean, youth to the infrastructure. It's not there. So in the township and rural areas, there are no computer center or labs where people can go after school. They could do their work. They could do their businesses because it's not there. So there's no space where they've got access, even if they've got the skill. In. And then three, it's quite expensive. So if you've got it, it costs you so much money to buy one gig of data. It's cheaper to come to our centers than to have access to your mobile phone. Tell me a little bit about your organization. How is it tackling the three problems, which is the problem with digital skills, the unemployment that that causes, and the fact that it's expensive? Yeah, so Silulo has been a kind of like existed based on anger and the frustration and also see the unfairness. So before we came in, people used to go to Cape Town to access to the basic. So we bring the infrastructure in the area where they are. So we'll have a 40-seater computer center that we divided into two. The back part is for training and that front part is for the access for many people in the township so that they can use it for looking for employment. They can use it to get the tenders or they get their business or can they use it for study. So what we do, we bring this access point where there's no infrastructure that comes in and we build those centers. Second, we've got a digital skill program that we have where we train Young people in a year, we train more than 5,000 young people coming in a day on the course, which is accredited. They could find the employment in the call center, retail space, government department, jobs in the banking. And so we've got kind of a, a program which student comes two hours a day, recognized by the university for that. Now. So we've got also these centers which have become a career center in the business centers. So if I'm a youth or I'm, so I reside in these areas and I want to know how to start my business, you will come to us. We'll assist you to raise your business. We'll assist you to able to link you with the funders. We'll link you with the banks. So we've got, I mean, kind of services that assist the job seekers, that assist the entrepreneurs. So we're creating these opportunity centers, but this has been driven from the kind of access to the internet. So there are some using our space for learning. There are some using our space for business opportunity. There are some using for our space for skill and development that they can need, but others are using for connectivity. I had the privilege of coming to visit you in Cape Town 
three years ago, what what struck me the most seeing you in your element and seeing your students and seeing your staff was this trust within the community for you. How do you build this trust? How do you create this trust and why is that so important? It's very important for us. Without the people that we serve, we are nothing. Five years back, the criminals came at night. They stole 25 computers. The following day, the committee member come to us and say, we know where are those computers. They've taken us with the police to pick up those computers. They, they were saying to us, you are doing something different. We can't allow criminals to destroy what are you doing now. And the community feel they're part of the business. That's one. We understand the situation where we are. So our prices, our lowest prices to extend that people can be able to afford. Some of the former staff member, former student are owning franchise with us and they're coming from same community that comes in. And some of these guys, they were not even fundable by the bank. So we'll go to the funders and the bank will say that we are fund 50% and we will take a kind of like shortage with them for like three years until they are in the position to be self-funded on their own. So we can build a profile for the funders now. So we are active at driving the value to our community. Now, I have two questions that came out of that. And one is around you being a social entrepreneur and what that means to you. For me to be a social entrepreneur, it's something that I really live up to. It's intentional. It's deliberate. So I regard myself as part of the first generation of the Lakers of the apartheid that I'm able to create something for the community. There's so much at stake to continue to succeed so others can succeed now. In Africa, problems that we have, they can be addressed by social entrepreneurs. But the entrepreneurs who are selflessly working to betterment the community, but whilst making money. And entrepreneurs who are driven see change happening in the community. Entrepreneurs who are angry with the system that is there, that anger channeled it to change the way things are. So my anger is being channeled to make sure that I create a system change. People often think, oh, you're a social entrepreneur, you can't make money, you are you know, dedicating yourself to something. I think it's possible to make profit in exactly as you said, you can lift others, you can do good, and you can make profit. So we never receive any funding to anyone for us from government, from the sector. It's a self-funded model. But it's been driven from the social agenda to make change. And, and we want to build that kind of model where we continuously making difference in people's life, and, but also continuously making revenue so that you can fund the scaling as where we will be everywhere in the country. The solution that we needed now is a solution of the social entrepreneurs because it has the commercial aspect, but also it's got the impact aspect. I want to go back to you as a person, your entrepreneurial journey. What are some of the things that you've learned and would like to impart to people listening? One lesson I learned, and I think people are asking me, who's my role model, is my mother. So my mother used to run a tavern uh, selling liquor 
and the time of the heartbeat of the apartheid. So it was illegal for the women uh, to sell uh, liquor. So the police used to come and arrest my mother and she would come back and able to sell. So I learned the resilience in my mother as I grow up. What also I learned, I learned the part of humility and being humble so that you could able to be in a space to talk with the king and queens, but also talks with the guys in the township now, in the levels that you could be. So I'm fortunate to be in that space, that I can operate in a different space and I can able to fit in and understand exactly how things are. And it's never been an easy journey. We had many robbers in the township. We had many fire in our offices. We had many kind of like serious challenges, but we'll overcome those challenges and we soldier on. And I think what keeps us to be grounded, to be able to focus on the core that we want to be a change makers in our community. Resilience throughout. That's what I heard as you talked about your journey. You know, you do, you also talked about that this is not an easy path. Failures and there's a lot of challenges that come your way, but yet you tackle them with with grace. I realized that for the next phase, it's not going to be about me. It's about people that I work with now. Having a right people that are going to work with me, that are going to take this to a next level, it's very important. And it's a very painful journey for many social entrepreneurs to be told by the people that you are employed that you are going a wrong direction now. It's quite key to surround yourself with much more experienced people who are much more qualified than you so that they can able to be working with you to achieve your mission. And I think another part in people, it's very important to instill your DNA in people that you work with now in terms of driving the value, driving the culture, and to make sure that the people that you are working with, they able to emulate and live the values of the organization. That was Lavoya Rani, co-founder and CEO at Salulu Ulutho Technologies. Want to hear more ways social innovators are fixing it? Then check out our website, schwabfound.org. Thanks to our guests today, Michaela Jade and Livoya Rani. Please subscribe to Let's Fix It wherever you get your podcasts and please do leave us a writing or a review. This episode of Let's Fix It was presented by me, Pavitra Raja, and produced by Alex Court. With thanks to Amy Kirby and Jerry Johnson for editing and Tom Birchall for sound design. Special thanks to our partners, the Mutsepi Foundation, and thanks also to our executive producers, Georg Schmidt, Robin Pomeroy, and Francois Bonici. Thanks for listening today and stay tuned for more inspiring stories.